Hello and welcome to Contemplative Episcopalian, a podcast of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. We are a Christian faith community located in downtown Beloit, Wisconsin. I am Father T.J. Humphrey, and for this episode, we're sharing with you a homily that I delivered on January 3rd, 2021. The title of this homily is Bible. A reading from 1 John. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. Here ends the reading. In seminary, my classmates and I, we had to write a long research paper on one of the letters in the New Testament. So I decided that I wanted to write a paper on St. Paul's letter to the Romans, specifically on the section in, the chap- in chapter 1 that seems to condemn homosexuality. It is because of human sinfulness, so says this letter, that God gave over human beings to shameful lusts. And the later letter goes on to say that women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, and men became inflamed with lust over each other. I wanted to dig deeper and figure out more about what this means. What was the intention in the author's mind? But I also wanted to write on this section of scripture because of how frequently it has been lobbed against the gay community to demonize them, and because of how frequently it has been used to suppress the rights of LGBT plus people in general. It breaks my heart that the Bible is used in this way to oppress people. But around that time, I had also read about a really innovative argument that one theologian has made in recent years when it comes to this section of Romans. His name is Douglas Campbell. Campbell has argued that these words, that they're not actually Paul's. To be clear, yes, yeah, Paul is saying them, or, you know, he's writing them, but they're not his teaching. They don't originate with him. Rather, according to Campbell, Paul is quoting someone he is arguing against. In other words, Paul is debating out loud (laughs) in this letter. And Campbell was clued in to this idea when he was reading it and realized just how choppy this whole section of Romans actually is. I mean, if you take the time to read Romans, like like just Romans 1 through 3, you'll see that the line of thought there is it's rather hard to follow. But if you can entertain a dialogue occurring, then it makes sense. It makes sense why there's so much back and forth and so much choppiness. And once Campbell started to entertain this idea that this section could be a dialogue or a debate instead of a monologue, where Paul could be quoting a line of thought that he's seeking to refute, well, things seem to flow more smoothly. Campbell's take on things fascinated me, and I eagerly set out to research it. And the more I dove in, the more convinced I became. (laughs) But after my New Testament professor had graded my paper, He called me into his office for a meeting with him to talk about it. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I remember nervously sitting down across from him, 
you know, but he had a huge smile beaming across his face. So that gave me some hope, at least, that everything was going to turn out to be kind of okay, right? And he started with, TJ, your paper is really, really good. You have a real gift for specifying your argument and for arguing it all the way through until the very end. And I said something like, gee, you really have a way of making a seminarian blush. <laughs> but then he responded with, wait, I'm not done yet. Oh, crap, here we go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he continued, your paper is really, really good, he said. It's just too bad how wrong you are. <laughs> I gave you an A+, plus, but this doesn't mean you were right. It just means you have made a solid argument. <laughs> So after coming to terms with the fact that I had just received a pretty intense backhanded compliment from my professor, uh, we actually sat there for half an hour or so talking about the details of my research and his take on that section of Romans. It's a lovely conversation and one that I'll never forget. Have you ever entertained the thought that Paul could have been, well, just wrong here? My professor asked me. And having come out of a more conservative, Protestant, Christian tradition that tends to take the Bible literally and tends to see the Bible as being flawless, I didn't know that was even an option. <laughs> the thought itself felt scandalous and heretical at the time, but I'll admit it also felt very freeing. My professor went on to explain to me that, in his mind, those words that condemn homosexuality, they are indeed Paul's unfortunately. However, he strongly questioned whether or not Paul would have written those words and held to that viewpoint at the end of his life. Now, of course, like there's no way of knowing for sure, but my professor believed that Paul probably would have taken that line of thought back as he got older and wiser and closer to the heart of God. And it's my sincere hope as well that that would have been the case, but again, there's no way to know for sure. But if we look at Paul's other writings, we do see him becoming gradually more progressive in the letters that he wrote later on in life. But either way, I've learned, whatever view is right, that that's not really the point when it comes to approaching the Bible. And I find as an Episcopalian priest, and just an Episcopalian person in general, our take on the Bible is just incredibly freeing. We in the Episcopal tradition, we openly admit that the Bible can be and is wrong in some places. We openly admit that the Bible is outdated and misogynistic and homophobic and other things in different, part, in different places of the scriptures. While other traditions hold that the Bible is the inerrant or the infallible perfect word of God, does this make our view shallow or hopeless or uninspired? Not in the slightest. In fact, to say that the Bible is infallibly perfect and without contradiction, this creates more problems than it actually solves. I mean, if you think about it, is God a loving God or is God a genocidal God? Can a God who orders the mass extinction of entire people groups in the Old Testament be a loving God? And what about those Psalms where the poet begs God to smite his enemies? 
where he goes so far as to ask God to bash the skulls of his enemy's children against the rocks. What about that psalm that calls for the murder of children? Should we pray for such things too? Is that God's infallible, perfect word to us today? And what about that whole bit in the New Testament where Jesus tells us we are to love our enemies? I mean, can you really love your enemy while you're praying for their demise and for their damnation? And another angle to look at it from, if the early church believed that the scriptures were infallible and without error and perfect, why did the gospel authors not only supplement, but change the stories around Jesus's life? I mean, it's widely accepted in all different traditions that Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel as a template for their own gospels. Mark was the one that was written earlier, and then the others came after him. But if Matthew and Luke believed Mark's version to be infallible and without error, why did they change what Mark wrote in so many places? The Gospels contradict themselves, and they just outright change some of the things that Mark says. We Episcopalians, we hold to a view that God didn't override the human element whenever the Bible was composed. It was written by human beings, and because it was written by human beings, we see both vice and virtue in it. We see both human perfection and human brokenness. And rather than throwing out those parts of the Bible that are archaic and aren't that politi politically correct or are very <laughs> not politically correct, we actually choose to keep them and to learn from them. And it takes wisdom to do this, but we choose to keep them and to learn from them. For example... Most of us know that it's not a terribly saintly thing if we were to pray that God would destroy our enemies. And yet, we all know what it feels like to want to pray in such a way. We know what it feels like to be completely overcome with anger and hatred at different parts in our life. So while we read those parts of the Psalms, for example, where the poet is praying that God would smite his enemies, we know well enough that we shouldn't imitate his prayers because we know it is wiser to follow Jesus' way of love instead of the psalmist's prayers of hatred. But does this make these Psalms just completely irrelevant and useless? No. There's still a lesson to be learned here. Those psalms, they teach us that God still listens to our prayers and that we should still pray, not only when we are at our very best, but also when we are at our very worst. The psalms teach us that we should bring our whole selves to God, not just our churchy selves to God, but that we should bring our broken selves, our angry, our hateful, and our doubtful selves to God. And the Bible as a whole, it teaches us this lesson, especially whenever we see the human defect at play in it. We Episcopalians believe that there is something in the Bible that is, quote, sufficient for our salvation. That's kind of the dorky doctrinal way of putting it. In other words, we, we love the Bible enough to critique it. And yet, even with all of its flaws... 
we still know that the Bible is as good as it gets whenever it comes to a meeting place with the divine. We don't need the Bible to be perfect or infallible or inerrant because we have learned that God chooses to speak to us through all sorts of imperfect and flawed situations and people. I'm saying all of this today because I know that many of you got yourselves hung up on John's words in the second reading from the Daily Office this morning about how we're not to love the world and the things of the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world, John says. I've seen all sorts of mental gymnastics done. All sorts of preachers and teachers try to explain away and to rationalize John's line of thought here. The world is just code, a code word for the empire or for evil leaders or for sinful people, some have said. But it's pretty clear that when John says the world... Cosmos, he means the world, everything. So are you telling us, John, that we are not to love our country, our city, our neighbors, our loved ones, or all of the little things that make daily life so sweet and so meaningful? Are we to do what John says and hate the things that bring us bodily pleasure, the things that look beautiful to the eyes, or even the very thought of having money? Rather than trying to justify and legitimize John's words, legitimize John's words here about not loving the world, what if we entertain the possibility that he was perhaps just plain wrong? Would this then mean that this passage has nothing worthwhile to teach us? Not at all. I mean, most of us, when we come to this passage, we can feel that John's teaching is off. Even if we're unable to to name why, we feel that it's off. I mean, John is pitting God and the world against each other. But we know that God loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? And we also know that John is off in his teaching and pitting God against the world because it's precisely in and through the world that we have encountered God. For us, the line between the world and God is not quite so pronounced as it seems to be in John's mind. And John is clearly thinking dualistically. And the fact that we can see this means that on some level, at least, we have overcome dualistic thinking. Just no insignificant thing. In reacting against John's words here, we can sense on some level, at least, that we have learned how to see the world as a sacrament for the divine. And that if we were to reject the world, we would be rejecting the very place where we encounter the divine. In feeling that John is wrong here, on some level at least, we can sense that our eyes have been opened and our minds have been enlightened. Now here's the thing to think about. Had we not had John's words here to react against perhaps we never would have learned this lesson about ourselves. In my opinion, there is far more to be gained if we see John's line of thought as being wrong, as opposed to seeing his line of thought as being completely in the right. Now the question is, was this John's intention all along? The question is, 
Was he just plain wrong in what he wrote? Or did he want you to believe that he was just plain wrong in what he wrote? Did he just have a very shallow spirituality and worldview when he wrote this letter? Or did he know that sometimes people learn the best whenever teachers play the devil's advocate and give their students something to push back against? The most important question of all to chew on, though, is this. What would it matter? What would it matter if one turned out to be more true than the other? If at the end of the day, you've become more deeply in tune with God's presence and awakened to God's presence in the world.